Book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. Paul and Barnabas are continuing a long time with the disciples at the church of Antioch. And while they are there, certain men came down. And that's where we'll pick it up. Acts 15.1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders to consider this question. So being sent on their way, By the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles. And the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the hearts, bore witness or acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build its ruins and I will set up its, it, set it up so that the rest or the residue of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are all called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from all eternity are his works. You can be seated. We've got a second account of this council that was held in Jerusalem. I want to just read it so we can kind of dovetail these two accounts and see what God was doing and why this was such an important discussion for the early church. In the book of Galatians, Paul gives his personal testimony of his conversion and his contact with the other apostles, whom he calls pillars of the church. And he relates that to the story of the, to the, to the Galatian Christians because they were having the same false teaching disseminated among them. There were a group that came from Judea called Judaizers, called legalists, who wanted to corrupt the gospel. 
And so Paul gives his account of that to certify that his gospel is in complete harmony with the pillars of the church that's in Jerusalem. The pillars of the church were James, the brother of Jesus, John the apostle, and Peter. James, the brother of John, already being put to death by Herod. So the James that stood up there and spoke was James, the brother of Christ, who was the leader of this church in Jerusalem. And Paul relates that story in Galatians chapter 2, where he says, Then after 15 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I also took Titus with me. And you notice as we read through the book of Acts, chapter 15, it says they commissioned certain ones to go up with Paul and Barnabas, and one of those individuals was the young man named Titus. So Titus was taken with them. We went up by revelation. So in other words, God again spoke to the church. God the Holy Spirit working in His church and up by revelation. And the church sent them, just as in Acts chapter 13, when the church spoke to Paul and Barnabas by revelation and said, Separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I have called them. And then the church sent them on to their mission in the same way the church commissioned these men to go up to Jerusalem. And it was through the corporate worshiping together that God revealed this to them. So Paul says in Galatians that I went up by revelation. God working through the church, through the corporate body of God's people, they came together. And that tells me that God speaks when His people are assembled together. The importance of the local assembly. This is the place where God speaks to our hearts. This is where God moves upon us. And Paul says, I went up by revelation and I communicated to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. And this is a little insight to what Paul did when he went up there. Rather than going to the addressing the entire congregation at first, Paul in his wisdom addressed those who were leaders, those who were approved by the Jerusalem church privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. He wanted to make sure that they were all on board before they had this public discussion about the gospel. He didn't want to run in vain. He didn't want to waste his time. And then he says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. I brought him up and I wasn't going to have him circumcised. And this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in. So some of the sect of the Pharisees that we're reading about in the book of Acts actually went out and brought others in secretly who were not a part of the Christian church, brought them in secretly so that they might spy out by stealth to find out this liberty that they had in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. And here's the reason, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But those who seem to be something, whatever it was, it makes no difference to me, God shows no personal favoritism. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. They gave me no new revelation about what the gospel is. We all agreed on it. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision had been committed to me as the gospel of circumcision to Peter. Now, how did they see that? I think it was what Paul said in Acts chapter 15 when Paul stood up, he and Barnabas, and they began to share the miracles 
the might, the power, the mighty deeds that God was doing through them as instruments of God. And so now the church, on the contrary, when they saw that this gospel of uncircumcision, that is to the Gentile world, had been committed to Paul in the same way that the gospel of circumcision, that is Peter taking the gospel to the Jewish people, had been committed to him. Now, how did they know that? I said again by the miracles, but verse 8 of Galatians tells us why. For he who worked effectively. The word effectively is the Greek word energeo, where we get the word to energize. They saw that Paul was energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the same way that Peter was powered and energized by the Holy Spirit. Peter would lay his hands on the sick and they would recover. He would go to the, to the church, uh, to the dump, temple gate and he would raise people up. Paul did the same thing when he was in the city of Lystra. He saw a man listening to him and he knew he had the faith to be healed and he told him to stand up on his feet upright. God was doing something unique during this time period through the apostles to empower them, to energize them, to take this gospel to a lost world. And when they recognized that in Paul, they said, we commission you to go to the Gentiles as Peter is going to go to the circumcision or to the Jewish people. Now, I've often heard people say that, oh, I just wish for a moment we could go back to the church of Acts the way it was in the early beginning, as if this church had no difficulties, had no problems. Nothing could be further from the truth. This church was under persecution from the day it was conceived. All through the book of Acts, you see the apostles being brought before the Sanhedrin, being threatened with their lives, James being taken and run through with a sword. It wasn't like they didn't have any problems with disputes in their church either. They weren't any different from us. They disputed about how the Greek widows were going to have their administration of their daily food. They had discussions about all sorts of difficulties within the church. Who's going to go up to Samaria? Who's going to commission the, that, that work there? Who's going to put their approval on the Samaritan movement? When Peter went to the Gentiles, they had no, a small, no small discussion about that. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 11, they says, What were you doing, Peter, going up and ministering to Gentile people? So in Acts chapter 15, we see another dispute. But we see a beautiful model of how the church should reconcile things. First of all, we need to distinguish between preference and doctrine. There are some things that you and I cannot afford to compromise. These are essential doctrines of the New Testament church. There's a lot of preferences that you and I just need to give over to our Christian liberty and say, you know what, those kind of things just don't matter. I've been in churches where they had discussions and disputes over things that really didn't matter. The first church that I pastored, we were told that ladies couldn't come into the congregation with a pair of slacks on or a pair of pants. And that was a matter of almost a doctrinal dispute. Young men couldn't come in with a pair of Bermuda shorts on to our church. You had to have your hair cut right to come into this church. You had to use a certain translation to come into this church. And I remember having so many button heads with so many of the, the, the deacon members that I thought, this is no longer a church. It's become a social club for certain people of a certain sect. And so those were things that I said, you know what? I am not going to dispute those things. I'm not going to get into an argument from those things. And finally, it got to the point where I said, you know what? I need to withdraw myself. And I need to just to, to meet some another building. You see, the church became a museum for uh, 
the perpetuation of, of man-made traditions. And those things, I, I don't have the time of day to get caught up in those kind of petty discussions. But this is something that is worth our effort and our time to understand that you and I must be prepared to stand for the purity of the gospel. All of Christendom, all of Christianity rises and falls on what the gospel is, and the gospel is continuously under siege. You look at the pseudo-Christian cults and the sects, they always add something to the finished work of Christ. And it doesn't just end there. Our sanctification, our perfection, our growth as believers, it's imperative that we understand that our sanctification is no different from our regeneration. Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who is it that bewitched you? I proclaim before your eyes Jesus Christ is crucified. I want to learn this one thing from you. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? It's a rhetorical question. Every one of us receives the Holy Spirit by faith. How then did you receive the Holy Spirit? And the one who works miracles among you, how does God work miracles among you? It's the same way. How is it that you and I are perfected? It is the same way. We grow by faith and we grow in grace. We don't grow under legalism. We don't grow under laws. We grow by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit and in faith in His Word. That is how God transforms us. I can't give you a law this morning that's going to make you look more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit will do that in your work and your heart. And those are the things that we need to defend vehemently. Men's wisdom must be set aside when it comes to the gospel. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. That's the foundation for the Christian life. That's the foundation for Christian growth. And that's the foundation for Christian sanctification. Jesus often came head to head and was confronting the conventional wisdom of man. Jesus often said, you have done away with the word of God by keeping your traditions. At one point, they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why is it that your disciples are always going around eating and enjoying life? And Jesus said, the bridegroom is here. It's not a time for mourning. And then he told a parable, a parable of a patched piece of clothing, and a parable of putting wine in wineskins. And what Jesus basically was saying, you don't try to patch up an Old Testament mosaic system with a new message of grace. We cannot mix law with grace. We cannot mix faith with works. Those things are mutually exclusive. In fact, when you try to mix them together, you undo both of them. The Mosaic law has a specific purpose and a specific time period that it worked in. The law was given. Why? It is a tutor to bring us to Christ. The law was given as a tutor. The law was given as a pedagogue to keep us under until the time that Christ did appear. That time has been completed, and now we're in this transition period in the book of Acts. 
I think the Pharisees and the sect that came to Judea, from Judea down to Antioch, I think that these people were sincere in what they wanted to do. So sincerity is not always the best test for what is biblical. Doctrine is essential. Sincerity is not always the best test for orthodoxy. A lot of well-meaning Christians have got off the rails because they thought they were being sincere. Every one of us have blind spots because of our background and because of the way that you and I have been taught. I am just as guilty of this. I remember when I first went to divinity school and I started hearing things that went against things that I had learned all through my childhood, all through my teenage years, and all through my adult life, that I had to say, what does the Bible actually teach? Because we all have this baggage that comes with us. The Pharisees and those of the Judeans that came to Antioch, they were no different. And they taught that you must be circumcised, and they used this word, ethos, by the customs of Moses. The Greek word ethos means a custom which governs your belief based on your traditions and your backgrounds. These things can blind us from the obvious truth of the Bible. And you and I need to be able to come to the Word of God objectively. Those customs and those traditions, they can just blind us completely. These people knew what Peter had already told them. Let's go over to Acts chapter 11 and we'll see that these people already knew that God didn't put a yoke on the disciples' neck in order to become a Christian. And yet their ethos, their customs, their background, their traditions kept them from seeing the clear teaching of the Word of God. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were at Judea heard, excuse me, heard that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went to eat with uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. But Peter explained to them in order from the very beginning. He says, let me tell you what God has done. And yet because of their background and because their traditions, they were blinded and they were sincere in their blindness. But there comes a point where you and I have to come to the Word of God with just an objective mind and say, you know what? I've got my preconceived ideas. I've got my traditions. I've got my background. But I want to know what the Word of God says on this topic. Here we have Peter coming to these men, explaining them thoroughly what the gospel was, and yet still there was a blindness. They were passionate. So not only is sincerity not a test for what is orthodox, but neither is our passion. Being passionate about something doesn't make something necessarily biblical. These men went about teaching. Verse 1, they taught the brethren unless you are circumcised. The word teach is in the imperfect tense. This went on and on and on. If it was a one-time offense, I think Paul and Barnabas would have let it go. But because this teaching went on and on and on, there arose a great dispute. You and I must earnestly contend for the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is our complete sufficiency. Paul had no small dissension. The word no small dissension really means there was an uprising. 
Paul stood up and he says, I'm going to revolt against what you're teaching. He wouldn't allow it to be taught. We're told in the book of Galatians why Paul wouldn't have Titus circumcised. In Galatians 2, we describe this council, and Titus was accompanying Paul and Barnabas. But neither Titus, who was with me, bring a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Two reasons. One, because false brethren came in unaware, and they wanted to bring this church into bondage. That was one of the reasons why Paul would not permit it. The second reason Paul says, I will not permit it, is so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So why do we need to contend for the sufficiency of Christ? Because anything other than the sufficiency of Christ brings you under a yoke of bondage. You don't need to be under a yoke of bondage. You need to know that Jesus Christ is completely sufficient for you. I quoted this morning in my prayer a passage from Peter. Peter said, Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ has been given you exceeding and precious promises whereby you have become a partaker of the divine nature. In Christ Jesus, through the knowledge of Christ, has been given you everything that pertains to two things, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything you need is found in the person of Christ. He is all your treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this morning, Colossians 2.10, you are complete in Him. You don't need to add anything to Christ. So Paul says, I don't want you to become under a yoke of bondage, and I want the truth of the gospel to remain with you. Notice something else about Paul. He doesn't make this a focus about personalities. When he travels back to the Jerusalem church, I think Paul is a very, very calculated tactician. We find that from this passage, and we also find it from the Galatian passage. Paul, rather than get embroiled into this big argument publicly with the entire assembly at Jerusalem, Paul wisely goes in privately. He finds the people that he needs to talk to, and he says, let's all get on board so that when we address this, we have a unifying voice. But on the trip back to Jerusalem, Paul very, very wisely goes back with this sect that's come with him. It's an interesting word, the word sect. It's actually the Greek word heresy. But anyway, as he's going back and traveling back to Jerusalem, what does he do? Verse 3 and 4, So being sent on their way by the church, he passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. And while he's passing through with this group of Pharisees and legalists, He describes the conversion of the Gentiles, the conversion. Now, don't get me wrong this morning. Just because we're not under bondage, we're not under legalism, that does not mean the gospel is watered down. That doesn't mean the gospel doesn't have the power to translate you out of darkness and into light. That doesn't mean the gospel doesn't change people because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And you don't need laws to do that. You need the converting power of the Spirit of God. And Paul went and he described to them the conversion. Metastropho. It means that you turned away from something and you turned towards something else. The Thessalonians had turned from idols. 
to serve the true and living God. It's the same Greek verb, convert, to transform, to be changed, to be a new person in Christ. And when he told the story of what God was doing, these Pharisees and the sect of the Judaizers were with him, and they saw this great joy that God was bringing. What a powerful influence that must have had on their lives. They must have been taken back and said, what in the world is God doing? These folks didn't need to hear about circumcision. They didn't need to hear about the laws of Moses. The gospel was completely sufficient to change their lives. And so Paul doesn't make a thing, make the, uh, about, uh, uh, a focus on personalities, but positively he describes the conversion of the Gentiles. He gives a full account of their conversion. This strong word, I talked about it already, how it means to move from one place into a different direction. And he gave God all the credit. He reported all the things that God had done with him. So first of all, this morning, when we come against contentions against the gospel, we need to make sure that we are going to contend for what is doctrinally pure and not make it a matter over preferences. Second point this morning uh, that I would like to share with us, um, find my notes. Is that we need to look for the providential hand of God. What was the providential hand of God doing? God as sovereign God was authenticating this new work. This is where you and I have got to take the Bible line upon line and precept upon precept. Otherwise, we get into some very, very strange doctrines about what the Holy Spirit of God is doing and what it means to be an apostle. The Bible is a unique book. It's written during different time dispensations or different divine stewardships. God progressively brings his revelation. And we've got to understand, as Isaiah said, line upon line and precept upon precept. Did God just abolish something that he had ordained? God ordained circumcision. God ordained the law of Moses. And these well-meaning Pharisees, these well-meaning believers who are of that sect, they felt this tradition need to be continued on because they had a misunderstanding of progressive revelation. And you and I need to have that same understanding of progressive revelation. What God was doing with the apostles was unique for them, and it's not meant for us. There aren't going to be more apostles added to his church. There were 12 that God has ordained and God chose because they had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They had to be with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry until he was taken up into heaven. And thirdly, they had to authenticate their divine appointment through miraculous signs and wonders. Church, if those signs and wonders are normative for all times and for all periods, that makes nothing unique about the apostles. Not everyone had those abilities. Not everyone had those signs, those powers, those wonders. And I'm not trying to water down the power and the mystery and the miraculous work of God. I'm trying to look at God systematically through the text of Scripture. 
God still performs miracles. God still is on his throne, and God does whatever he wishes among the children of men. But God is also a God of order who has revealed himself through his divine word. Jesus said this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law. He wasn't destroying the law of Moses. He wasn't saying circumcision isn't important. He wasn't saying the ceremonial law wasn't important. He wasn't saying that the, that the, um, the political laws of Israel were not important. But what he was saying is that they have been fulfilled. You and I don't have to slavishly observe a Sabbath anymore. This is the Lord's day, but you know what? You're just as saved and you're just as close to God whether you came this morning or not. Now, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Don't get me wrong about that. But the point of the Sabbath is that you are resting in Jesus and Christ has fulfilled that. You don't need to put yourself under some kind of legalistic test that I have to be every time the church doors are open for be a good Christian, I have to be there. No, you rest in Christ every moment of every day sacrifices and praises of God now fulfill the lambs. No longer do we bring dead animals to please God, but you and I under the new covenant because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, we bring our lives as a worship to God, a living holy sacrifice acceptable unto Him. The temple, we don't have to go to a geographic place to find Christ, do we? He has fulfilled it. We are the temple of the living God. And whether we come together under this building or not, we are still God's people and he still dwells among us. He didn't destroy the law. He is the fulfillment of all of it. And Peter begins to show that God sovereignly and providentially was working through his apostles to bring new revelation to the church. Revelation that had been a mystery in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same promises, part of the covenant of Israel. That was a mystery. And now God is choosing special people to bring this message to the church. God's providential care for his people. God chose to work through the apostles uniquely to confirm his will and his message. So how did God do this? Well, let's look at what Peter says. Verse 7, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us. Out of this group, God decides he's going to choose one person. This is an election to service. Why did God choose Peter? I believe Peter is a part of the foundational stone of the church. The book of Ephesians says this, You and I have been built on the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. It's the aorist tense in the Greek, which means the foundation has been completely laid and it's a finished work, and now we are being built on that foundation. Peter, I believe, in Mark, Matthew chapter 16, was one of those key foundational stones Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave all sorts of answers. Then Peter stood up and he said, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. 
but my Father which is in heaven. And from now on, your name is not Simon. Your name is Petros. Peter means a stone. And then Jesus says, and upon this rock. He's not talking about Peter. It's a different Greek word. It's the Greek word Petra. Upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, it's going to be loosed in heaven, Peter. Whatever you bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven. He has the power through the gospel to bind sin and to loose sin to those who believe. And Peter, God says that he chose me to start this loosing work among the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And then God chose me to go to the first one, to go to the Gentile world, to the household of Cornelius. God was working something unique through this dispensation of the apostles to build his church. God chose him to work through him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's see what Peter goes on to say here. He says, men and brethren, you know a good while ago that God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word, the gospel, and believe. That's the order, isn't it? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and that has not changed since the days of Peter. What else does he say about God? What was God doing? So God who knows the heart He acknowledged, the Greek word is marturios, which means to bear witness. God gave a testimony to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. God knows the heart and He testifies to those who are the circumcision by giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, what is Paul, what is Peter referring to? Just as He did to us, and He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter is referring back to when he was in the household of Cornelius. God chose Peter to go. God then testified to them, and then God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us at the beginning. Now, what is Peter referring to here? He's referring to when he saw them speak in tongues. Why was tongues given at that occasion. It's clear from Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 47, that God gave the gift of tongues for the Jewish audience that accompanied Peter. This is what God was doing unique. He was providentially, progressively revealing himself through the apostles that he was now bringing us all under the same influence and the same baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. This morning, God knows your heart. This morning, God bears witness to you. And this morning, God has given you the Holy Spirit because God purifies our hearts by faith. What a beautiful message it is for us to have. God makes no distinction. Conversion is immediate. There was no intervening time. While Peter was speaking the word, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. You and I are miraculously and instantaneously taken out of light and put into the kingdom of his dear son. Simple faith. They didn't even say a prayer. They didn't walk an aisle. They didn't raise a hand. No no invitation was given. God knew their heart. I remember when I was in Ireland... (laughs) 
I used to think I had to get people to say a prayer with me in order to see them converted. And we had this Irish lady that came to our Bible study at our home for about 11 weeks. And finally, I looked at my wife and I says, Tracy, I think Miss Fitzgerald is ready to receive Christ. I says, why don't you sit down with her and explain the gospel to her? So she'd been coming to our house every week. We're going through the gospel of John and we sat down with her. And I wanted to see her go through this prayer of faith that, yes, I confess Jesus is my Savior. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that with people, but we misunderstand what God is doing. It's not a formula. It's not a prayer. It's an immediate, miraculous conversion. So my wife says, Veronica, would you like to receive Christ right now? And Veronica looked at Tracy and she says, why do you think I'm coming to the Bible study? Some between, time between week 1 and week 11, she had understood the gospel and accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. It's immediately, it's complete, and it's without reservation. Conversion is moral. It is thorough. Conversion is not meticulous. I'm sorry, meritorious, but it's freely given by grace. Let me tell you a little bit, another story about Miss Fitzgerald, Veronica, her mother's name was Bridget. And Miss Bridget had had open heart surgery. And she wasn't very happy that her grown daughter, who was about 30 years old, was coming to a Bible study and wasn't attending her normal religious services. And I says to Veronica, I says, I want to go visit your mom. I want to go share with her what God is doing in your life. And Veronica says, oh, no, Patrick, you don't. I says, oh, yes, I do. She says, no, you don't. I've already tried that. She said, well, I said, well, let me go anyway. I want to go visit her just to, to, to pray with her. So, well, Fitzgerald is a very common name in Ireland as it is anyway. And they don't have rooms like we have in America. They just got these great big open rooms with sheets in between everything. And so I walked in one of the rooms. I says, is Mrs. Fitzgerald in here? And about five ladies said, yeah, I'm Mrs. Fitzgerald. And I started to go one by one. Is your daughter Veronica? No, no, that's not me. Is your Veronica... And so I finally got to the Miss Wright, Miss Fitzgerald, and she pulled back the curtain. She, she just had open-heart surgery. She yanks back the curtain, and she starts to point her finger at me, and she says, what have you done with my daughter? <laughs> and I says, Mrs. Fitzgerald, I haven't done anything with your daughter. And this is where I tried to be a little bit tactful. I says, she has got so much to be thankful for you, to, to you. I says, because you brought her to Mass every single week. You taught her to love the Bible. I says, but most importantly, you listened. You taught her to listen to the Blessed Virgin Mary. She looked at me. She says, what are you talking about? I says, you remember at the wedding of Canaan? She says, oh, yes, yes, yes. Mary says, whatever my son says, do it. And I says, and Veronica's had a wonderful transformation. I says, what she used to have in her head is now in her heart. And the whole situation was diffused. And that's what Paul and Peter were doing. They were saying, this is the providential work of God. God knows the hearts. God testifies and God gives people the Holy Spirit. And it's not through ceremonies. It's not through baptism. It's not through catechism. It's through the power of the simple gospel. How beautiful that is. When we are questioned about God's providential hand, we are actually testing God. 
when we want to put on people other things that are not found in this Bible, we are actually putting God to the test. I remember that first church that I was talking about in my, in my introduction. One of the deacons came to me on a Saturday night. I'll never forget. I got a phone call at 11 o'clock. The deacons want to meet me at 11 o'clock in the church parking lot. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And I'll never forget the head of the deacon. His name was Herman. And Herman looked at me and says, he says, Patrick, he says, this church had all of these standards and one by one you're knocking them all down and you're going to make it so anybody can come into this church. <laughs> and I just said, praise God. I said, is that what you wanted to talk to me? I'm going back to bed. And that's what we ought to do. When we, this is what, when you and I put more yoke than what God puts on people, we are actually testing God. We're putting God's patience to a test. You and I can do the same things. When I don't believe in the sufficiency of Christ, when I don't believe God's promises, when I feel like I've got to do X, Y, and Z in order for prayers to be heard, I am actually testing God's wonderful grace and provision. I can come to God any place, any time, and it doesn't matter if I've had a bad day. It doesn't matter if I've got sin accumulated in my life. I don't need to listen to the lies of Satan. I don't need to listen to the lies of legalists. I can come right before God and get right with Him. I see so many Christians who live a defeated life because they put God to the test. They think God's not good enough or God's not gracious enough to forgive you right where you're at right now and to put it all under the blood. And you can pick up and walk with God and say, tomorrow is a new day, and I'm going to walk with the Lord closer tomorrow. And I'm going to thank God for His grace for forgiving me right now. They were putting God to the test by putting more on God than what God had required. To test God is to say, grace is not sufficient. I demand more evidence. Don't we do that to people all the time? I want to see more evidence in your life that you're really walking with God, but His grace is totally sufficient to forgive them. We test God to replace grace with the Spirit. I'm sorry, we, when we replace grace with law and we re replace Spirit with works as a means of salvation and as means of sanctification. A yoke is a term for a representation of a rabbi's teaching. That's what this word means. In the New Testament, the word yoke, that's what it meant, a rabbi's teaching. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus uses the same term. He says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my teaching. Let me be your rabbi. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will have rest unto your souls, because my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The yoke that Christ took upon him was the yoke of the entire law. All 613 laws were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And he says, I have fulfilled them for you. And not only have I fulfilled them for you, I will now work in you to work those laws out through you. The fruit of the Spirit. I can't quote them all. But it says at the end of that, Paul says, and against these, there is no law. You will fulfill the law when Christ works in you. And so by putting a yoke on the, the apostles, uh, on them, is to take away 
the freedom that we have in Christ and not that freedom is ever to be exploited. Freedom is a way that you and I now serve God. Galatians chapter 3, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, it says this, let no one put a yoke of bondage on you for if you get circumcised, you're a debtor to keep the whole law. And then down in verse 13, he says, only do not use your, your liberty as a license for sin, but through love serve one another. Now, what is our final and absolute authority when it comes to our faith and our practice? It's got to be the Word of God, not our experiences, not our passions, not our sincerity. And I love the way James sums this all up. He says, the Word of God authenticates your experience. Verse 13, chapter 15. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out a people for his name. So he's sharing an experience, a providential working of God. But then he says God's providential working and experience in your life also matches what the Word of God says. Those things are imperative that they go together. We can get misguided because we have an experience or because we have a sincere, genuine opinion on something. But if those things don't conform and agree with the Bible, they are not from God. I've had people tell me about all kinds of visions they've had. I've had good-meaning people tell me how they've had out-of-body experiences or loved ones that they've had, and they've traveled from one religious temple to another in the state of Utah. Folks, those things may be very genuine and they may be very real, but they don't agree with the Word of God. I remember a young man came to me one time and I was counseling him. And he told me of a prophet in his church who stood up and gave a prophecy over him that he was supposed to be a pastor, he and his wife. And I looked at him and I said with all sincerity, I said, I know that you genuinely believe that with all your heart. And that man who prophesied that over you genuinely believes that with all of his heart. I said, but he was mistaken. He says, well, how do you know that? I says, because God's word tells me, first of all, that a man who's to be a pastor has to be the husband of one wife. And you're working on your third marriage right now. And secondly, the Bible tells me that I'm not to allow a woman to usurp or have authority over man, but God, God created Adam first and he's to lead in the congregation. So I said, that wasn't a voice from God. That was an impression. That was an emotional high. It was a feeling. And we all have those kind of things. And I'm not discrediting those things because God does work in our heart. God does work in our emotions. God does work in our feelings. And those are wonderful things, and we ought to follow them up to a point. When God gives you a, 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 an unction to do something for someone, yes, follow that. But make sure what God is speaking to you agrees with what is found in His Word. God will not contradict Himself from what He says and what the feelings and the emotions and the experiences you have. 
Paul or Peter <coughs> has told what God did in his life, how he visited him. And then James says, and this, the words of the prophet, agree. The Greek word for agree is symphony. They have to be in harmony with God's revelation. This is our final authority for what we believe and what we practice. God is not confused, and we don't need to be confused either. What God does will always agree with what God reveals. What God has intended for us is the inclusion of all people from the beginning of creation. Look at verse 18, and then we'll close. Known to God from all eternity are all His works. God has always had a plan to reveal Himself through the Word of God to bring a people into His, His presence called the church. God from the beginning has chosen us for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Known to God are all of His plans. From Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing that He is calling out a people unto Himself. First through the nation of Israel, and now through the apostles and prophets, and today through His church. This is God's plan for you and I. We need to earnestly contend for the gospel. I want to close with just the, the, the key verse of this entire passage for us to remember this morning that we believe through the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they.